The scripture passage for today is on page 448. Psalm 3. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried out loud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept, and I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Let me encourage you to go to a book of Lamentations. I asked Alana to read uh, a psalm of lament just to show you that we have, uh, this is a a common thing in the scriptures, these ideas of lament. One person may be lamenting today. They turned 60 recently. I'm not going to mention who it is, Rob, but uh, happy birthday to you. We're going to be in Lamentations 2, which is page 686, and the Bible's provided for you there. We started this series last week. Um, This is one of those uh, sermons that um, I really have not been looking forward to preaching. Uh, This, if if I were to pick um, one of the most challenging chapters in the Bible... Um, not just to teach, well, because sometimes you get into some technical things and make something a little bit challenging to teach, but just the subject matter of it, this ranks up there. Um, I'm not going to say it's the, the most difficult for me. I, I can think of some other passages that might be challenging. Uh, my family right now, we're, we're going through Leviticus in our Bible reading, and there's a lot of laws in there that spark a lot of questions from kids. Uh, so uh, that, that can be challenging at times, but good. This is challenging just because of the subject matter of it. Uh, we all love to, to talk about God's, God's love and, and things, and, and we should, and we will. Um, but there's other aspects of God that we need to wrestle with. And this chapter forces us to do that. And so in a minute, I'm going to read the chapter, and we're going to wrestle with it together. But let me give you a little bit of a reminder of the background of the book. Remember, Lamentations, we don't know uh, who wrote the book for sure. Uh, church history has often and most consistently attributed to Jeremiah. Makes the most sense by my accounting as well. Uh, the Septuagint does, uh, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. They, they say that Jeremiah wrote it, but the actual Hebrew uh, d- listed it as anonymous. Now, there's so much overlap in, uh, of material, and we're going to show that today as well, that t- lends me to believe that Jeremiah at least was the main author of it. Other people may have contributed to the book as well. Uh, but we don't really know who wrote it, but we do know that it is in response to the fall of Jerusalem. Remember, God raised up Babylon uh, by Nebuchadnezzar, uh, 597. Uh, he put the siege on the city puts uh, uh, you know, the, the leader in there, pays tribute to him for 10 years. And uh, then there's a rebellion by the leader of, of Jerusalem. And so in 586, uh, 
Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, you rebel against me, gloves are off, and he goes in, and he just wipes it out. And he, he, he sacks Jerusalem. This is the event that has just happened here, and, uh, and, and this is the response to it. Um, Jeremiah 21, the, the, the fall to Nebuchadnezzar was prophesied. I told you last week in 2 Kings 24 and 25, and then Jeremiah 52, that we have the account of that happening. We told you last week that God had warned Israel of this potential 900 years previously in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Uh, Jeremiah had warned of this event for 23 years. He had preached and, and warned them over four different kings um, and said that, uh, that um, um, that this was going to happen, and they rejected him. In fact, there's an interesting story. I won't take time to go to it, but he gets thrown in prison, uh, well, kind of under house arrest. First of all, Jeremiah, he can't go into the temple. He's barred from the temple, so he sends some people to read some things, and then um, they're, they're, they take what he wrote, and, and they're reading it to, to the king and prophesy and say, hey, you're, you're, you're going you're gonna to fall if you don't repent. And, and there's a story in Jeremiah where where as they're reading this to the king, uh, he's got a, a fire burning next to him. And so they read a copy of the scroll that Jeremiah wrote, and he gives it to him. And, and he takes a knife, and he cuts it up into pieces and throws it into the fire. And this is just going on until the whole scroll is burned. Um, and you say, well, how do we get the scroll, the scroll then? Well, he rewrites it. And he rewrites it again. Uh, but this is what Jeremiah was going through. And he was prophesying, and, and Israel is, is not listening and so the eventual destruction happens. Now, it, we, we said this last week, and I want to say it again. Um, it's important that the suffering of this book here is directly connected to Israel's disobedience. So we can't take a, a line for line, a parallel, uh, say, okay, uh, any suffering that I'm going through is because of the same thing. But we can take the principles of it. Uh, it's possible to go through suffering and it not being related to sin. Uh, but it is also possible that suffering that we go through is related to sin. And so we just need to keep that in mind. But the principle is that we're going to look, is not so much about the suffering, it's about what we can learn about God and, and, and sin. I told you last week this is an acrostic. Well, the first four chapters at least are the acrostic. Uh, 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, chapter 3, he uses three uh, verses for each of the, of the letters. We get to chapter 5, and there's still 22 verses. So there's a semblance of it, but it's kind of chaotic. And uh, some people say that it's not a full acrostic because it's just showing the, the chaos that the book still ends in. But the one thing I wanted to pe- mention today that I didn't mention last week in my introductory thoughts before I read uh, chapter 2 here is that the, 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 the type of literature this is, this is poetry. I, I did mention that these were poems, uh, actually funeral poems, um, but, but they're poetry, and, and poetry is, 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 is different. It, it's, there's, a, there's an intentionality behind poetry. Sometimes you'll read the Bible and you'll say, how come you just can say that more simply, you know? Yeah, maybe you've thought that. Um, maybe you haven't said it out loud, but you read through something and it's like, oh, well, as this does this and this does this. And you're like, okay, nice simile here, but I, you know, just say it. Well, poetry is designed um, because it's, it's meant to be felt. And I'm not a big into poetry. I'm not one that writes poems uh, to my wife or anything like that. I don't think I've ever done that. Have I ever done that? I don't think so. Okay, all right. Um, I'm just, you know, it doesn't resonate with me, right? You know, I, I love you. Yes, I do. 
There we go. There's my poem. Okay. <laughs> All right. It just doesn't resonate with me, but uh, it is meant to be felt, okay? And it's, it's meant to awaken the emotions while communicating truth to the head. So it's, it's designed to speak in such a way that it, it impacts the heart and emotions while communicating truth to the head, okay? That's, that's the beauty of poetry. And while I'm not uh, a poet, um, I can understand and appreciate the value of it. And that's what's happening here. It, the the way this is written, it's meant to awaken emotions while communicating very positive truths, or, or, or not necessarily positive, but um, important truths uh, to, to us, for us to understand here. So I'm going to read Lamentations 2, uh, 22 verses, follow along. This is page uh, 686 in the Bible's provided for you. <clears throat> How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitants of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughters of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand, in the hand, excuse me, in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy. With his right hand, he set like a foe. And he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid and ruined its strongholds. He has multiplied in the daughters of Judah, mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on a day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampant and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more. And her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what Compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem. What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? 
For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for your oracles that are, le- that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry. We have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we long for. Now we have it, we see it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He's carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night. At the beginning of the night watches, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see, with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb and children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the street, in the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord... No one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised my enemy destroyed. That's tough reading. That's not the the passages that we typically go to in the scriptures, but there's a lot for us to learn with this. What would you say is the theme of this second chapter, this second poem? If we've read all 22 verses What would you say the the theme is of this chapter? Many different things could be said, but I think the most obvious answer is it's the anger of the Lord. And we see that there's a, there's a rhetorical a, a device, a literary device uh, that's used here. It's called inclusio. We see it in verse 1 and verse 22 where it starts with the anger of the Lord and then it ends in the anger of the Lord. And all in between there, we see the anger of the Lord that is being displayed here. So what can we learn from this? And why is it so difficult for us? Because when we consider, or, or how can we, how can we, how can we uh, mesh this? How can we balance this with other passages in the scriptures like that we talk about here? Like there's Exodus chapter 34, and it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And just two others, the exact same verses, uh, Psalm 103, verse 8, and Psalm 145, 8, say, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So if we know that that's the backdrop of what the Bible consistently teaches about God, that he is patient, that he is long-suffering, that he is slow to anger, then when we come to Lamentations chapter 2 and we see this outpouring of God's anger, how can we reconcile that? What can we take away from this? 
Well, there's a lot of lessons that we can learn, but time is quickly going away, and so we'll just center on this one lesson, then we'll unpack it is this. Sin is worse than we typically realize or recognize. That's what I hope we walk away with today. As looking at Lamentations 2, what would bring out this response from God? And his anger is different than our anger. His anger is just. His anger is righteous. And so it's possible for us to have righteous anger, but typically many times our anger is not righteous. But God's is always righteous, and it's always just. And so if we know that to be true of God, we know that he's slow to anger, and notice that those passages never said he never got angry, because he does get angry. And what does he get angry about? He gets angry about sin. And what does that tell us about sin? It tells us that sin is worse than we typically recognize or realize. So that's what we're going to unpack for the next few minutes here. But I want to pause and ask God's blessing. Father, this is a difficult passage, a difficult text you know the wrestling that I've had with this over the last, oh, not even just this last week, even beforehand. There was almost a dread of coming to chapter 2 here. Can't wait to get to chapter 3, but have to get to 2 first. And Lord, I pray that as we unpack this, we see it for what it is. And we don't make apologies. You're, you're a righteous in all that you do, including your anger. It's just hard for us. But Lord, I pray that instead of just wrestling with that peace, I pray that we would, we would recognize that sin is far worse than we typically realize. I pray we'd be changed. I pray individually, our families, as a church, as a result of looking at this text here, that we would be, that we'd be moved by you and your spirit. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. There's three reasons I'm going to unpack of why sin is so terrible. The first is that it's terrible because of what it is. Sin is terrible because of what it is. We're going to look at what it is, what it does, and what it costs. So first of all, sin is terrible because of what it is. I won't take time to go through all the proofs of this and things like that because we're going to keep this moving because we have some ground to cover here. But a, a simple way to say what, simple, what sin is is that it's really a violation of God's laws or, or God's desires or God's standard or, or what God has set out. That's, that's really what sin is. In, in, in verse 18 of Lamentations 1, it said this, it says, the Lord is right, for I have rebelled against his word. And so even there, the, there's a recognition that God is right to respond in the way that he has been responding and will respond uh, to sin is because sin is a violation of what God has set up. Sin is uh, uh, a, a flagrant um, uh, uh, going against God's commands and God's laws and what he has set up. And the thing that we need to understand is that if God is good and God is true, then whatever he sets up is what's best. And whatever he sets up is what's right and which is righteous and, so, and what is just. And so if God is who we say he is and what the Bible says, then even his laws are what is right and just and good and, and what is best for us. And this is why we say all the time is that following Jesus is not just right, it's also best. It's not just the right thing to do, it's what's best for us. And when we violate that, that's called sin. Uh, uh, 1 John chapter 3 says, anyone who makes a practice of sinning also practice lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. 
But here's the thing is at the root, more than just violating a command, what sin is at its root, it's idolatry. It really is. At, it, at its root, what sin does is it tells us that God is not right, that, that God is not just, he's not fair, he's not good. Whatever it is, that's what we're doing when we sin. So when I sin against God in any way, shape, or form, maybe it's a, a, an outburst of anger, I'm saying that I deserve something better than what I'm receiving in that moment. But yet God tells me that he's, he's working his life. He's given me good things. Now, there's nothing wrong with righteous anger. Now, I, I get angry at child abuse, and there's, there is righteous anger. So, so don't read this of like that all anger is always bad that humans have. But typically, on a day-to-day basis, what I get angry about, what you get angry about, is not typically a righteous anger. I think we would agree on that. Or, or, or other sins, if, 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 um, if, I, uh, if I tear someone down, if I, if I, if I say uh, just incredibly hurtful things to people, what am I saying? I'm saying, I deserve to be better than you. I deserve to be in a better state than you, or you are nothing. And this is why, and it, it's almost like denying their existence. This is why Jesus says that if you, if you hate a brother in your heart, if you hate him unjustly, right? He says, if you hate him, it's as if you've killed them, as if you've committed murder in your heart. You read through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, you, and you read through that when Jesus said over and over again, you, you've heard it said of old uh, that if you do this, but I say unto you. He says, you know, you, you've heard it says don't commit adultery, but I say to you, if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed a, a sin of adultery already in your heart. You see, at the point, at the root of every sin that you and I commit is really idolatry because we're going against God. And we're removing him in that moment from that rightful position that he has of the one who calls the shots in our life. So sin is terrible because of what it is. And, 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 and it, you know, I, I know I've illustrated this this way. I think it's been a long time. But also, we see how terrible something is by uh, the person that we're sinning against in that. Okay, so l- let me sp- explain it this way. So... Let's say you, for those of you who are parents, let's say you overhear your kids and they're in the other room and, you know, they're, they're probably just getting along just perfectly and they're having a great time in there. Maybe they're reading their Bibles together, helping each other with Bible memory, whatever they're doing. Maybe they're encouraging each other in fasting, whatever your kids do, okay? And then one of them looks at the other one and just says, shut up. Now, I don't know what you allow in your house, but, you know, in, in our house, we're like, hey, you know, if I would hear that, I'd step in like, hey, we, we don't talk to each other that way, right? And I would deal with it. Okay, hopefully you would too, okay? So there's an offense that was created there. Scenario number two, you're sitting around the dinner table, you're talking, hey, how was your day? Your kid looks at you and says, shut up. Is that the same? <laughs> is, is that the same response? No, no, because one is a sibling, one's a parent, right? Okay, so it does make a difference with who we're sinning against, right? I've illustrated this way before. If, if, if there was a bug or a fly that came here, I'd be preaching, I can just kind of hit the fly and toom, you go there. No one would say anything. If some people would say, man, that was actually good reflexes. Good job. Yeah, no one would say anything, you know. But if a dog came by here and I just kicked the dog... Some of you be campaigning for a new pastor. 
Okay, right? And I could come back and say, wait a minute here. I killed a fly. I merely kicked a dog. Okay, all right. I didn't bring up cats because we're all agreed there. But, okay, <laughs> so the point is the dog, right? Okay, you know, now we can take a step further. You know, a little kid comes by and I kick a kid, right? Okay, you know, this is really bad. This is really bad. It gets worse and worse and worse, okay? Absolutely, it just gets worse by whatever we're sinning against. That It actually has degrees to it. Now we put God into the equation. The exact highest. No one's higher than God. So this is why sin is so bad, okay? This is not killing a fly. This is not kicking a dog. This is not kicking a child. This is sinning against God Almighty. Don't you see? See, sin is terrible because of what it is. It's idolatry against a holy, righteous, perfect God who deserves obedience and who has only done what is good and just for us, and we sin against him. Sin is terrible because of what it is. But it's not just terrible for what it is. It's also terrible because of what it does. What is what is. What does sin do or what does it bring about? Well, it demands God's anger and judgment. We see that here in Lamentations 2 over and over again. I think I, if, I, if my math was correct, in the first nine verses, I believe it was, there were 26 action verbs that were attributed to God in response to sin of what he did and what he does because sin demands this response. Sin is not something that can be just treated lightly. And this is the reason why some people will just say, well, why doesn't God just, 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 you know, just kind of act like it didn't happen? Because he can't. Because he's holy. Because he's righteous. And would you really want to serve a God who just, just did, when sin happened, he just, oh, well, let's just pretend it didn't happen. Well, maybe you'd like that for your sin, but what about everyone else's? Would you really want a God like that who, who, when a terrorist attack happens, God's like, oh, let's just pretend that didn't happen. He's going to deal with it. Now, he may not deal with it immediately, and he may not deal with it according to what our plan would be, but rest assured that sin brings God's anger and judgment. It's fine when we consider those examples of people that are committing terrorist attacks and atrocities. We say, yes, may God judge them for that. And that's not a bad prayer to say pray. But what about my sin? What about your sin? Do we really see sin for how bad it truly is? I don't think we do. I, I know I don't. I just one thing I've been just convicted over and over again is like those little things, those little things in my life that just kind of let go or whatever, or just the, the bad attitude or, or the, I'm just snippy with, with, with someone or something like that or, 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 I, or pride that comes into my heart or whatever. And then, and then it's like, okay, you know, well, we're all that way or, or no one's perfect, things like that. But this is sin we're talking about here. And the Bible's very clear that it demands God's anger and judgment. Now, that brings unfathomable pain. It brings great unfathomable pain. I mean, can't we just see this in Lamentations 2 of all the descriptions that is happening of people dying, of people being uh, uh, forced out of their homes? We're seeing that there is no longer a temple worship. It it, it says the Lord, verse 6, the Lord made Zion forget festival and Sabbath. I mean, there's nothing to be happy about here. It brings great pain. When you're going through a tremendously traumatic, painful experience, the last thing you want to do is party. 
And that's what they're experiencing here because of their great pain that they've had there. And it's in his fierce indignation, king and priest has been spurned. Over and over again. I mean, look at verse 11. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out into the ground. This is graphic language of saying that he was so sickened by what he saw, that the pain and destruction, that he was throwing up. And he was throwing up to the point where there was nothing left because of what sin did. And God was judging it. Sin just brings tremendous pain, more than we think. Today, in chaos, we're always looking for satisfaction in things. And if you notice, it just never satisfies. It just doesn't. I mean, we, we, we start, you know, watching things on the Internet that we shouldn't be watching. And it's, it's filling that, that desire in that moment. But then we always go back to it. Because why? Because it doesn't satisfy. Or we read the romance novels. Yep, okay, I'm going to pick on the women too now, okay? We read the romance novels that just fill our minds with all sorts of sensuality and things like that. And we think, oh, you know, but it doesn't satisfy. We go back to the next one. Over and over again, it just doesn't satisfy. In fact, actually, it just brings uncomfortable, uh, uh, things that are uncomfortable. And not just for here today, but eternity. The Bible says... Whoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is what sin does. For all eternity. You know, I, I think I've said this before. As a theologian, I go through and I, I, I try to read through all the different doctrines and, and things like that and there's a doctrine, the doctrine of sins called uh, hematology, and so you read through that, origins of sin and all that stuff. And then you get into the punishment of sin. And there's a, there's a, there's a theory out there, it's called annihilationism, which means that in the end that hell is not real, it's not literal, okay? That what happens is, is that someone who isn't a believer when they die, they just go straight to the grave, and then they cease to exist. Their soul perishes that way. But those who believe in God continue on for eternity, and they get to have eternity with Jesus. I first came in contact with this theory when I was in college, and boy, it sounded so good to me. I wanted it to be true. And so I, I read, and I talked, and there was another student that was promoting this view, and I talked with him, and do and you know that I studied and studied and studied, and I just can't find that the Bible teaches that. Boy, I wish it did, but it doesn't. The Bible teaches that if someone dies in their sin, there's eternal punishment. That's what sin does. And we kind of play with it. We kind of flirt with it. We kind of let it have a corner in our souls, in our lives. We can't. We can't. You see, it just brings some unfathomable pain. And then here's the other thing. Man, it affects more people than we think. 
I mean, did you see this in, in, in Lamentations 2? And we're talking about children. We're talking about the elders. We're talking about priests. We're talking about kings. I mean, all these people are mentioned in this text. You know, kings and priests in verse 6. And we see the children in verse uh, 12, verse 11, verse 12. And, and, and we see all sorts of people that are mentioned here. And the reason why is because sin has this, this sweeping effect. And the sin that I allow in my life not only affects me, but it affects my family. It affects my church. It affects those around me. It affects my workplace. And the same is true for you. But we don't like to think about it in those terms. We like to think that it's just, it's, it's okay. It's not that big of a deal. I'm, at least I'm not doing that. And, I'm, and I may say, you're right. I'm glad you're not doing that. I'm glad that you're not committing those types of sins. But please, we've got to be people that take sin seriously and say, it has no place in my life. I've got to be constantly fighting against this. Now, again, am I saying that we're going to get to a place where we can be perfect in this life? No, the Bible doesn't teach that either. But the Bible does teach. Well, I'll tell you what the Bible does teach, that we are to be more and more like Christ that we are to grow in our spiritual walk and that we're going to be able to put to death the things of the works of the flesh and we're going to be able to grow past certain sins in our lives and sins in our lives. That's what God's, that's why he's left us here is to grow in our sanctification journey. But it always affects more people than you think. This is, this is why sin is so terrible. It's not just something between you and the computer screen or you and the book or you and that one person. It affects so many other people. It affects so many other people. Then, letter D, it influences our decision-making ability. This is a nicer way of saying sin makes us stupid, Okay. Have you ever looked at someone and they've got caught up? They've they've got they got caught up in a scandal or something like that, and you think, how could they have been so stupid? I mean, we're talking about people who just like give away. I mean, there there was a, a, a in the, in the college football world, there was a coach who uh, got involved in some inappropriate relationships and uh, literally cost him an eighty-seven million dollar contract. $87 million, out the door, just because of an inappropriate relationship. You think, how in the world? How could he do that? Well, after we say that, then just say, well, it's possible because sin blinds us. Sin blinds us and it makes us take risks. It makes us do things that we just never thought would have been possible before. It impacts our conscience the Bible talks about our, 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 our conscience can be seared as like a hot iron, and so, or as with a hot iron. And so it makes us to have, make really poor decisions here. I mean, I told you the story of, of the king, that Jeremiah is, is, is the words of Jeremiah, the scroll that is warning him that, that God is going to bring judgment. And, and, and what does the king do? This is a, a, in Jeremiah, I, I believe it's, it's chapter 26. I could be wrong in that. But... Um, He's reading the scroll and it's being read to him, rather, and he's just cutting it up and throwing it into the fire. How can he be so calloused? How could, how could he just completely reject the word of the Lord that way? Because sin had gripped his soul. How can we just re- reject God's word time and time again? Because sin has a powerful effect on us here. I mean, this is what, in verse 18 uh, of chapter 1, the Lord is right, for I have rebelled against his word. 
right? Um, it affects our decision-making ability. There's two more before I finish what, what, what sin cost. Not only that, it enslaves us. Uh, Titus chapter 3 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led, a slave, uh, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days with malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's what sin does. It causes us to be enslaved. Romans chapter 6, right? Romans chapter 6 talks about how that we, uh, and in Ephesians chapter 2, it talks about we're children of wrath. Uh, before I- I- any type of Christ's work in our life, we're children of wrath and we're enslaved to sin. This is what sin does. It ensnares us and enslaves us. And even those of us who are Christians, sin can still have this ensnaring effect on us. It can have that where, where, where we are just, we go back to what, this is what he, Paul is saying in Romans 6. He's saying, why are you going back to this? You've been set free from that. Don't go back to that. You, you've been set free from the bondage of sin that it brings and that, that it ensnares you. Don't go back to it. But yet we do over and over and over again. You see, what can we learn from Lamentations 2? God has to deal with sin through his anger and judgment. Sin will always be judged. And, and let me tell you, it's worse than we think. It is, is far worse than we think. Because of what it is and what it does. And one last is that it makes us more susceptible to deception. How do I see that? In verse 14... It says, your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. What is he saying there? He's saying the prophets that you're listening to, they're telling you false things. And you're listening to it, you're swallowing it. This, we could read about this in Jeremiah uh, like 28 and 29. You would read there of this story uh, of the couple of accounts where Jeremiah, he first hears a prophet uh, say something, and then God tells Jeremiah, what he just prophesied is not true. And Jeremiah goes back and says, you've got to stop saying this. And they, they, they ban him from the temple for it. Because they were just wanting to listen to the, 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 what they wanted to hear. We, see, we read about this in the New Testament that in Second in Timothy chapter 4, it says in the latter days, people are going to heap up for them teachers that have, they're going to have itching ears and they're going to heap up teachers that will basically just tell them what they want to hear. False teachers. If we continue in sin, if we continue in sin and we don't repent of our sin, the Bible says that it makes us more, it teaches us that we're more to, uh, susceptible to being deceived. See, this is why sin is so bad. This is why God has to deal with, with, with it in anger because it is so bad. It, it's not something like, well, okay, you just didn't do what I wanted to do, but we'll just move on. No, this has terrible effects, and I could keep going on and on with what sin does and all these effects. But when I mean, you just look at this list that's on the screen here, I mean, it just brings pain. Why do you think God is angry? Because he knows that a pain is going to cause. Why do you think God has to deal with anger and judgment? Because it affects a far greater number of people than we think. It affects our decision-making ability. It enslaves us, and then we become more susceptible to deception. Don't you see why God gets angry about this? Because it messes with the creation, his creation, the people that he made in his image, it totally messes with us. So of course he's going to get angry about that. And he's right to get angry about it. So sin is terrible because of what it is and what it does, but then finally, because of what it cost. Of what it cost. 
we have our cost first, that how it affects us. I already mentioned eternal punishment. Remember, there's a story in Luke's gospel of a rich man and Lazarus. There's a story goes that Jesus tells a story that there was a, a man with great wealth um, that was trusting in his own uh, abilities and things like that. And then there's, there's, there's a man named Lazarus. He was, he was, a, he was a, a poor man. And, and the day came where they both died. And uh, Lazarus was trusting in God, and so he gets to go to eternity in paradise, where as the rich man, he goes into uh, a torment. In fact, the, the Bible tells the story, as, as the story is told there in Luke's gospel, that he was in so much torment that he, that he, he cried out, and, he, and he, could, he could communicate with Abraham, and he says, hey, have Lazarus go and dip, dip his finger in a cup of water and, and, and have him come over to me and just touch my tongue, because I am in so much pain that even that even just a drop of water is something that I just, I, I just can't stand to think that I can't, I, I can't live without. And so please do this. And then later on, he says this. He says, hey, I've got brothers. Have lad raise Lazarus from the dead. So that they go and they can tell my brothers so they, to believe in God, essentially, so that they don't have to come to this place. But it's interesting. There's two things that are interesting about that. One is that um, the rich man doesn't argue that he shouldn't be there. He doesn't say, I, it is unjust for me to be here. He just says, I don't want my brothers to be here. Because he understands what sin did. Okay? He understands what rejecting God did. Okay? Then the second thing is, is that the response, Abraham says, they've got Moses and the prophets. They've got the word. If they're not going to listen to the word, they're not going to listen to someone rising from the dead. The power of the word. So the point is, is that there is a great cost that sin has that we have to pay, that is our debt to pay, and that is eternal separation from God, eternal punishment. But then, um, and this is where I told you before, whoever was not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. Now, if I ended the sermon here, it would be the most depressing thing. But I can't end it here. I got to tell you about because this, this also tells us how terrible sin is when we consider not just our cost, but Jesus' cost. Okay? Jesus' cost. Think about what Christ did. Okay, think about what he did. He left heaven. Okay, he took on a human nature. He lived an entire life from childhood to adulthood, every stage right, right into adulthood, living a perfect life, completely obeying the law, completely obeying the Father, and then he died. And not only did he die, but he was crucified. He was, he was, he was accused falsely, and he was crucified. And so he died. This is what Jesus did, okay? He went through all of those things. And then, remember, while he's hanging on the cross, he cries out to the Father, and what does he say? My God, my God, why have you... That's a great cost. That Jesus, he paid. Why is sin so terrible? Because we see the amount of debt that it racks up of what it costs. If you had a debt and you said, hey, I've got a debt. Can you help me with it? I'm like, how much is it? You say 10 bucks. I'm like, sure, I'll help you out. No big deal. But if you say $100 million, I'm going to say, I'm not your guy. Because I can't help with that. The debt is far too great. That's what sin is. 
That's how we see how terrible it is. But what it cost. It racked up this enormous debt. Enormous debt. Switching metaphors or say if you say, you know, I, Jeremy, I, I need to confess to you that I stole something from you and I need to confess it to you. I'm going to say, oh, sure. What, what, what did you steal? You say, I went into your office and I took some of those candy corn erasers. I'm going to say, bless you. Okay. All right. All right. No harm, no fall. But if you came to me and said, Jeremy, I need to confess to you. I stole something from you. I'm like, well, what, what, what did you steal? And you say, I got access to all your financial records. I took all of your money. I took everything. It's all gone. I'm not going to have the same response. Because it, it's, it's a greater cost. The sin is so much greater because of what it costs. And here, what did Jesus have to do to, to, to forgive this debt? He had to leave heaven. This is something that he couldn't just say, okay, we'll, we'll, just, we'll just do something different. He had to leave heaven. He had to live a sinless life. He had to die an unjust death. He had to rise again from the dead. I was reading, um, I believe uh, this was um, Watson, Thomas Watson. He said, all the princes on earth or angels in heaven could not satisfy for sin. Only Christ. He says, nay, he's a Puritan, so he writes funny. He says, nay, Christ's active obedience was not enough to make atonement for sin, but he must suffer on the cross. So it wasn't just enough that he lived a good life. He had to die. That's why sin is so terrible. Because of what it costs. He goes on to say the evil of sin is not so much seen and that a thousand are damned for it as that Christ died for it. You see, sin is far worse than we think. So where do we go from here? Well, let me give you some concluding things real fast and then we'll have the Lord's table. Here's what I want us to meditate on. If sin is so terrible and deadly... Why do we keep going back to it? Why are we playing around? Why are we messing around if sin is so terrible and deadly? Okay? Number two, we must plead with God to help us hate sin, to help him, help us see it as he sees it. There's more evil in the drop of sin than in a whole sea of affliction, I read. Prayer is always the right response here. This is where Psalm, I, I, I didn't get into verses 19 and 22 of Lamentations 2, but I will just say this, is that at the end, it's, it's the appeal to pray to God, even in the moments of experiencing God's anger over sin. We pray to God. We go to God. We must plead with God to help us hate sin and to see it as he sees it. And then... If you're a Christian, you must be thankful, incredibly thankful, and thankfully devoted to God if he has taken away your sin. So how can we not sing with joy on Sunday mornings when we gather together? If our sin is as terrible as we've just seen, and Christ on the cross has taken it away, how can we just stand there with hands in our pockets and just not singing? I don't get it. 
How, how can we approach the table of like, okay, it's another ritual for us to do here. How can we just not be bursting with gratitude and joy to our God who has taken away sin and its terrible effects on us if you're a believer in Christ? And so the, the, the answer to sin here is, is that, is that we've got we to gotta cry out to Christ to save us. We repent of our sins. We ask God to forgive us of our sins, and we cry out to him for salvation, and we follow him. That's the answer to sin here is we live our lives according to God's standards, not according to our own. And when we mess up and we sin, we go back to him and we say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I need to follow you. I need to follow your path. Please forgive me. That's what it means to follow Christ. To have a, a, a view of sin. To understanding how God sees it. And then a, a resting in God's forgiveness that he accomplished on the cross. But here's the thing. is that If you're not trusting in Christ alone for this, then you're going to have to pay the cost of sin. And you're going to have to be eternally separated. You're going to have to go through hell. I don't want that. So today's the day of salvation. Cry out to God for salvation. And if you are a believer in Christ, we should just be overwhelmed with gratitude that he's given us an answer. You see, God's angry at sin. But when Jesus went to the cross, what Jesus was doing there is he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he was doing there, he was making it possible. God in his plan was making it possible for us to be saved from himself. Saved from his anger. He says, I have to judge this this sin, but I'm going to make a way so that you don't have to bear the cost. So cry out to the Lord for salvation. 